Blame it on Sir Walter Scott or Queen Victoria. They romanticised Scotland and turned it into a a romantic, tartan-clad sort of mystery. Coming up, two of my favourite tour guides from Scotland help you plan a visit from the glories of Edinburgh and funky Glasgow to brooding castles and the otherworldly highlands. The locals know that the beauty of Scotland never grows old. And I suddenly found this huge passion to tell people about where I was from. When Jane Cayantis and Nikos Hadjikostis were winding up a multi-year around-the-world adventure, they found the seaside town of Nathlio in the Greek Peloponnese looked like a good place to pause. And we found a very nice cottage outside of Nathlio in the orange groves, and we thought we would stay for six months. Well, those six months quickly became six years. Hometown guides to Nathlio and Scotland are all just ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. For such a lovely country, it's unfortunate that a lot of the cities in Greece just aren't much to look at, given all that concrete and traffic. But by preserving their town's Venetian architecture and narrow back streets, Nathlio has earned it kudos as the most beautiful town in the Peloponnese. We'll make Nathlio our base for exploring the southeast Greek mainland a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with an insider's look at all you can enjoy in Scotland. It's become quite a popular destination. With a little insider knowledge and a bit of time on your schedule, you'll find plenty to enjoy and keep you busy in Scotland. Tour guide Anne Doig lives in Edinburgh, and James McCletchie comes to us from the Hebrides Islands. They're here to take your calls at 877-333-RICK as we help you plan a kilt-raisin high-step in Scottish fling. Anne and James, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's so exciting to have you here to explain Scotland because Scotland is really trendy among American travelers and we have to sort through all the options. And when you're dreaming up an itinerary traveling around Scotland, and let's say one of your guests would have 12 or 14 days to enjoy Scotland, what would the, the basic structure of that itinerary be? Where would you go? Kind of like a triangle coming up from Edinburgh through the centre of Scotland over to the west coast where you get the really spectacular scenery and then coming back down via Glasgow and then Edinburgh. So that it's almost like a triangle. So from Edinburgh up to the west coast, uh, Oban, uh, north Glencoe, and then west. Um, Isla, Iona maybe, Isla Skye, mm-hmm. and then across uh, the, that slash in the, in the geology there where you've got the uh, Caledonian Canal. Canal. And that's Loch Ness, part of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then up to Inverness. And around Inverness, there'd be some great sites from the battlefield of Culloden and so on. There's one area called Speyside that I went to for my first time. And it's just a little south of uh, Inverness. And really the heartland of whiskey country, isn't it? Whiskey country. James, if you're you're taking uh, some travels around Speyside, what would you be sure to see? One of the things that I like doing up there is heading right up. A lot of people heard with the royal family, you're moving right the way up towards Balater and to Balmoral. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's really fascinating about that area is the variety of landscape. You're coming into moorlands full of grouse. Mm. You're coming across the whiskey trails. And the whole story of Queen Victoria herself and Albert, and also how the rail lines opened up the whole highlands of Scotland, has suddenly yeah. became this hugely attractive place. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Because, of course... England really um, subjugated the Scottish people. I mean, there was bloody battles there, and Scots people couldn't play the bagpipe, they couldn't wear their kilts and all that. And then in the 19th century, Queen Victoria sort of is charmed, romanced by Scottish culture. Robbie Burns and wonderful clan gatherings and the, the bagpipes became in vogue. 
and Albert and Victoria got the Balmoral Castle. They got Balmoral Castle, but what was really interesting about her as well was we have a term, Balmorality. Uh, she introduced a code back into Balmoral about how people were to be when they became the subjects of coming to visit them in there. She also covered the castle as tartan. Uh-huh. Uh, she had the highland cows out in the front lawn. So she embraced the Scottish. She, she really took it to heart. Did the uh, English people kind of think, what is going on with the Queen? She's becoming Scottish yes, on us. I think they did. Especially the Prime Minister had to go up and spend a week and walk up moors in the pouring rain. And she, the castle was cold. Princess Diana hated it, all <laughs> morality. But we have to thank Queen Victoria because she wrote her Highland Diaries. She was very articulate. And Walter Scott, before their writings... You're right, Scotland, clan battles, it was considered a scary place. They romanticised Scotland and turned it into a a romantic, tartan-clad sort of mystery. And now the Scots really have embraced the United Kingdom. uh, Kind of. Well, kind of, yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm thinking about the recent um, close election about do we stay in the United Kingdom or not, but historically the Scots have defended the Queen in battles overseas quite uh, nobly. The clans and the Highland clans and the Scottish, the, the soldiers themselves, uh, following Culloden. They, many of them are shipped out into the British regiment where they actually uh-huh. had great valour. Great valour. Now, this is interesting. Is that just because boys like guns and swords or is it because they really wanted to defend the crown? It was really defending the crown. When you look at how the Scottish regiments came together, how they also joined, when you hear about the story of the World War One, brothers, sons, all left from the Highlands, they all answered to the cause. And of course, they believed it was only going to be six weeks of war, but right. they were out there for many, many years. But they were fighting people. Yeah. Uh, it was in their DNA. They made very good soldiers and that clan so. loyalty. So yeah. that that then went to the, the so regiments the from the clan loyalty, ah. transmuted to the to the, the regiments. Just defending the royal family. It's the country. Yeah, the country. And because England and Scotland fought in two world wars together in the 20th century, my parents' generation, they would never have voted to separate. They fought for the United Kingdom. We're getting expert ideas for enjoying the best of Scotland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Scottish tour guides Anne Doig and James McClatchy. James's website includes lots of photos of the Hebrides Islands, where he specializes in custom nature tours at unwindinnature.com. You know, I want to get right into some itinerary issues here, Anne and James. By the way, James, I just feel like James is a anglicization of your name. It's a Seamus, right? Seamus, yes. So if I was with you out in your homeland in the Hebrides Islands, your friends would not call you James. No, James is a very unusual name where I live in the Hebrides. Most people are Angus or Donald or you and one of those names. Um, So as I move through, they they prefer to use a Gaelic term, Seamus. Is Seamus, is that James in Gaelic? That is James in Gaelic, yes. Seamus. I love that name, Seamus. It's got a nice little ring to it. It does. It's poetic. If you're a tour guide, it's a good name for a tour guide. It is. (laughs) Seamus. So, Anne, if you're debating Edinburgh or Stirling, the two great castles. Which one are you going to see? Oh, this is terrible because I live in Edinburgh. But for me, Stirling Castle is much more interesting than Edinburgh Castle because it's very military, Edinburgh Castle. But if you right. go to Edinburgh, you have to go to the castle. Sure. But there is, in the dungeons, 1812, remember when the, the Brits burnt the White House? Yeah. The American Navy came up the Firth of Forth some of them were imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle. And this is my favourite part of the castle. One of them etched on a wooden door a little sailboat with the flag with the first 13 original states from the colonies. Is that right? Yeah, now that's really unique and interesting to Americans, in a, I in would a think. In a prison cell in, in the castle. In a prison cell in, in Edinburgh Castle. That's my favourite exhibition. I'll have to check that out next time yes. I'm there. So I, I think what you're saying is 
You like Stirling Castle. If you had to choose one or the other, probably better than Edinburgh, but you're going to be in Edinburgh anyways. So you you're going to, to see visit Edinburgh. Castle. And then basically, Stirling is worth the one hour side trip to see. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then, uh, James, Seamus, if you're uh, looking for big city thrills, you got Edinburgh and Glasgow. In a nutshell, how do you characterize the two and which should you, where, where should you spend your time? Oh, my goodness me, this is another hard very, very hard question. Let's look at it historically from where I come from. A lot of the Highlanders would go down to Glasgow to do university and college there. So we've always found Glasgow slightly more friendly uh, yeah. than Edinburgh. They say that Edinburgh, a lot more friendly uh, is, Edinburgh is kind of hierarchy in a way when you go there. But both cities are very different culturally. Glasgow, it was a city of culture at one time, famous for its shipbuilding. And the whole history of Glasgow itself, about the immigrations in from Ireland right. into the Gorbals. And if you look at what they did as a people, it was once the second city in Britain at one time. I mean, yeah. there was a, at one time at Glasgow's peak, a, a good percent of all the ships on the high seas were made in Glasgow. Well, and it's so tragic to see today when you look at it. There's been a huge development all along the waterfront mm-hmm. of the Clyde. But at one time, you'd have gone there, you'd have heard the banging, you'd have seen the men coming out to the factories on a Friday, their wives waiting for them to give them the wages. And there's a fantastic mm-hmm. transport museum as well up there. But the whole story of Glasgow is really worthwhile. And it's only 45 minutes from Edinburgh by train. Uh, I love that transport museum right on the river too. It's well worth it checking the, out. Can I just put it in a nutshell? Edinburgh is visually more beautiful, but uh-huh. the people of Glasgow are fantastic and the yeah. museums are amazing. And they'll say in Glasgow, you'll have a better time at a funeral in Glasgow than a wedding in Edinburgh. That, that <laughs> nails it. That's perfect. Yeah, I can, I'm glad I you can said that. I can say that because I'm from Edinburgh. But you have to visit <laughs> Edinburgh. It's a, it's a very beautiful city. <laughs> you have a better time at a funeral in Glasgow, Glasgow than at a wedding in Edinburgh. I can understand that. I mean, uh, I would imagine there's a little more enthusiasm for soccer and all the sports and so on in Glasgow. You've got two two competing teams, one representing the working class and, and the Catholics and one representing the... the working the, class uh, and the Protestants. Uh, working class <laughs> and the Protestants. And you got to know what color you're going to wear when you step oh, into yes. this or that pub or this or that shop. It's quite That's exciting right. to be able to tap into that. A lot of tourists just go to Edinburgh because it's so darn famous and they neglect Glasgow. It's just 45 minutes away by train. If you got four days in Edinburgh, I feel very strongly that the most interesting thing to do on that fourth day is to get up early and spend a whole day in Glasgow. I agree. Now, you've got, of course, the Highlands, and the opposite of the Highlands would be the Lowlands. I I feel like uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow is the belt of industrialization and so on across, and population across the middle of the country. Uh, Between Hadrian's Wall in in England and the big cities, you've got the Lowlands, rolling hills, Mm. subtle, charming, and then you go north of Edinburgh and north of Glasgow, and you get the harsh, sparsely populated, rugged and wild Highlands. If you think of a bagpiper in the wind blowing tails through the heather, the, yeah, that's going to be that's your Highlands view, frolicking in the yeah. heather. So, and uh, what about the lowlands? Because to be honest, I've always just uh, for me, it's the equivalent of flyover country. Well, there's some very interesting little towns I have to say in the lowlands in the border area, the disputable lands, Melrose, pretty towns. People retire there, ruined abbeys. But there are fantastic walks. There's one called St Cuthbert's Way Mm. and the hills are lower and it's accessible from Edinburgh and Glasgow and it's charming and the little towns are charming. Mm -hmm. They're famous for the rugby farming. It's worth a visit. But I have to say, I agree with you. For mm-hmm. me, to get up to Sky in the Northwest Highlands... Because yeah. if you say there's rolling hills and little towns and Cuthbert's Walk, it's charming. That's kind of like a polite way to say there's bigger attractions farther north. 
Yes. You can, I mean, you can enjoy the borders, especially if you have heritage there or something. I was going to say, Neil Armstrong, the big deal when he came back, that's a name from the borders. Seamus, you you live out in the Hebrides, yeah. the Outer Hebrides. Yeah, it's a very small population of 24,500 people. Wow. Uh, we have 11 occupied islands covering 130 miles and a lot of unoccupied islands as well. It's the last bastion for the Gaelic language today where there's 50,000 people speak it worldwide. 50,000 people speak the language worldwide. worldwide. Uh, it's still the main language at home, although over the last decade it's began to change because we're losing many of the older people. The young generation are moving away. But it's a very beautiful place to live. It's very windswept, very open beaches. But from there, we look to the highlands, Mm. to what Anne was just talking to about, this cathedral of mountains that we can see on the other side. And you've got this urge to go in and get into them. Yeah, because you're on almost a a very desolate and, and remote and quiet island. Tranquility is probably the norm there. And then you can step over onto the uh, onto the mainland. You take a ferry basically to the Isle of Skye. And then we take a Calmac ferry. It takes about uh, an hour and 35 minutes to Skye. And then suddenly you're into this other world, this other amazing place to go and visit. You're seeing mountains and high hills. It's one of the few places where you can see an example of Mycenaean revival architecture. We'll explore my favorite seaside town on the Greek mainland, Naflio in just a bit. But next, we open up the phones at 877-333-RICK as our guides James McCletchy and Anne Doig help you plan a great Scottish getaway on Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning why Scotland has become such a popular travel destination and exploring our itinerary options on Travel with Rick Steves with certified tour guides Anne Doig and James McCletchy. James, as we've discovered, is also called Seamus by his Gaelic-speaking friends and family in the Hebrides. Anne, where are you from in Scotland and how did you get into tour guiding? I live in Edinburgh, right in the centre of Edinburgh, which I absolutely love. And I got into tour guiding because I used to live in Australia and the only thing I could do would be a tour guide. And so when I came back to Scotland, that was what I looked out to try And there's so much demand for tour guides in Edinburgh. Now, yes, absolutely. That's where all the tourists go. And Seamus, tell us about where you grew up and and how you became a tour guide. I grew up in the Outer Hebrides, uh, this incredible place. I had so much freedom around me and so much uh, wildlife and adventure. And I became a lobster fisherman when I was 16 years of age. And as I was going out in those boats into the Atlantic Ocean, I could see all those birds and everything around me, and nobody was interested in it whatsoever. And I began to study the wildlife, and I loved the way they interacted. And people used to come on the boat trips with us for a little journey out, and they would say to them, oh, go and talk to him, he knows about that. And I suddenly found this huge passion to tell people about where I was from Uh and to tell about the landscape, and then just slowly, gradually moved into tourism and became a countryside ranger. And historically, when you look at Americans and the Scots and the Irish, uh, they have such a strong bond. Yeah. And it's just opening up that bond to them by releasing the stories of where we are, that they find it themselves and they can go off and explore and enjoy it. Mm. Where did the Scottish Americans originate generally? Uh, there's lots of migrations across there. I mean, the biggest uh, migrations we do talk about is after the Highland Clearances, when mm. the landlords themselves realized they couldn't support the local population. 
But what they didn't realise was that a journey across the Atlantic Ocean in what they call as Longan Kishtuch, the, the coffin boats, Many of them would die with cholera on the way. Coffin boats. That's yes. not yeah. a very... I, I hope it didn't say that on the ticket. No, it didn't. No. Good. That's yeah. what they were called. So they were, were very likely not to survive the ride. Mm. And when they came here, there's an old saying, all we saw was trees, Indians, and bears. This <laughs> is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anne Doig and James McClutchy, and we're talking about Scotland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Allison's giving us a ring from Galveston in Texas. Hey, Allison. How are you doing today? We're doing great. Do you have a comment or a question for our guides? Yeah, I do have a question. I'm interested in visiting Scotland for the first time, and I wanted to know what cities or sites should be uh, you know, on the list for about a seven-day trip. And also, how to get around. Is it better to rent a car or go by train to go from city to city? So you got seven days, your first time in Scotland. Are you, are you combining that with it, other travels in Europe or Britain? No, I think I'm just going there. Flying right over. Great. Basically, I think you don't want a car in a big city. So if you're in Edinburgh and Glasgow, you don't want a car because you wouldn't use it. It's just expensive to rent it and it's expensive to park it. And you can connect them very inexpensively and quickly with a 45-minute train ride. So I think you'd want to do Edinburgh and Glasgow to get your city, your urban Scotland out of the way. And then you'd rent a car for three or four days and, and explore. And where would you explore if you had a car for your first trip? St Andrews, which is about 48 miles from Edinburgh. It's a beautiful university, college town, famous for golf, of course. And then come back to the centre and go up to... There's a a lovely town called Pitlochry, and that's the beginning of the Perthshire Highlands. That's a nice place to stay. And then I would go up further north to Inverness, over to Skye, or way up to the northwest. You can do Mm -hmm. that place called Gairloch and then come back down the west coast. It's not too scary driving once you're out of the cities. Of course, you're driving on the British side of the road, different than ours, but you get used to that. If you're in a near head-on collision, you're probably on the wrong side of the road, so don't be too confident (laughs) in your driving, Alison. But you'll see more in a car, (laughs) you know. And remember, once you, if you do just beeline it on the road, you can get anywhere in a couple of hours in Scotland, it seems like. So one thing I really enjoyed was going to um, Speyside, as I mentioned earlier. And I, mm-hmm. I went to, have you been to the Cooperage there where you can actually, yes. you can view the making, making the barrels. The barrels. Yeah. And it's just a time warp experience. I, I feel like I'm looking back 150 years. And then you can go to the most, uh, your choice of the most famous distilleries. You've got to visit a, a whiskey distillery sooner or later on your trip. There's eight around just one town called Dufftown. So eight? This, yeah, this is, and it's called Speyside, right? Speyside. SP, the River Spey, SP. There's, and there's a whiskey trail. There's lots of uh, marketing for that. You get leaflets on it. That's interesting. So that's a lot of fun. And one thing I've found fascinating is the sort of the, the loyalty and the heritage and the almost spirituality of these clans. And they've got their castles, which are the spiritual capitals. And people from America, people from Scotland, go to the clan where they've got the artifacts of the, of the clan that goes back generations. They've got the, the head clansman that still owns that castle. And talk a little bit about how you could choose any number of castles that happen to be the capital of that clan the McDonald's or the Campbell's or whatever. But, you know, on the island of Skye, it was the Americans that they didn't rebuild the castle. They started a centre, and that's the homeland for McDonald's, which is probably the biggest clan. But economically, they were in a lot of trouble. Some of these old places, it's very difficult to keep them going, but there's Duart Castle on Mull, and the clan chief still lives there, and that's the Uh McLean's, and they have a big gathering 
Yeah. I was at uh, Inverary. There's a castle in Inverary. That's the Campbells. Oh, yeah. that's a beautiful castle. It's stunning down there. And there's one on um, Sky when you come up yeah. from the ferry dock. We've got Dunvegan up there. Dunvegan. And originally the castle of the McDonald's was Duntullum Castle, uh-huh. which is right out on the headlands of Sky. Yeah. And what's really interesting about some of those clans is they actually link back to the Norse heritage. Huh. So you've got Clan Loud, which came from the Norse name, which was meant to be the ugly one. Uh, um, which was said to either have been the son of Hakon, uh, the great Viking right. leader, as he was heading down to Largs. Oh. So there's a massive connection there. And those clans, uh, remember, after Culloden, many of them were sort of dispersed. And the clan chiefs lost a bit of wow. the power that they had. So just across the water in Bergen, there's this, the greatest stone building of the Middle Ages there called Hakon's Tower. Oh, wow. Oh. Be wow. the same one. So it could be from the same. <laughs> there goes Hakan, the and he Hakan. sailed across. Because then Kailakan is Hakan, where Hakan had his boats. Oh, it is. Anchors, it is. Yeah, oh, so okay. it uh, relates to the same. But thing. I, I've visited a lot of these clan castles, and they're all great. But if you visit one, it's just a great opportunity to gain an appreciation for the deep heritage and the passion that these clans have together. So I would choose at least a one clan castle, Allison, and check that out. I hope that gives you some ideas. Yes, definitely. I appreciate the information. Thanks for your call, and have a great trip. Thank you. Even Balmoral Castle welcomes tourists. This is the Queen's getaway yeah. in Scotland, right? Or yeah. the royal family. And a lot of people were grumbling because you pay a pretty steep admission fee and you only get to go into one great room in the palace. Ballroom, in the, in yeah. The ballroom people there. get disappointed about that. The but grounds I, in the ballroom. Yeah, but the grounds are gorgeous and there's a bunch of uh, buildings around that are open and some exhibits. And I felt kind of honored to be able to walk around there. Yes. I think part of the experience of Balmoral as well is you actually learn the story of the royal family when they're a family. You hear about yeah. Prince Philip burning the sausages when yeah. he does the barbecue. You hear about the Queen making the salad dressing. And when I was there last year, this lady came to me, said the Queen came into the shop and said, now Mary, you've put temptation in my way. And she said, and the Queen leaned over, lifted two bars of chocolate, put them in her pocket and said, now look what you made me do. <laughs> and she walked out. And you just get those That'd amazing stories yeah. when you talk to those local people in those places. You know, you you get a, a tape-recorded audio tour to walk through, and it's keyed in with different numbers, so you can look and know what the painting's all about. But you also have the docents and the and the volunteers that are working there. And they're lovely people, and they love to talk. And I find all over Scotland, when you go into a historic building, talk to the guards, talk to the people. I was at the uh, Clan Castle in uh, Inverary, and I was standing next to a huge wall just decorated with armor, swords and shields and all this kind of stuff. And they were chinked up. They had been in battle. Yeah. Ah, and Culloden. Culloden. At Culloden I mean, <laughs> these weapons fought at Culloden, and now they're on the wall making a little spiral and a little uh, circle yeah, and a little pyramid. Culloden, yeah. And I, didn't, I wouldn't have known that had I not talked to the guard. And mm. he loves to talk. We're getting you ready for the trip of a lifetime to Scotland with the help of James McCletchie and Anne Doig right now on Travel with Rick Steves. They're longtime tour guides based in the Hebrides and in Edinburgh. Claire's calling in from Portland at 877-333-7425. Claire, what would you like to know about visiting Scotland? Well, I am hoping to go to Scotland this June. It's my first trip there, and I'll just have graduated college, so I'm going to be doing student travel for sure. Nice. And I was wondering if you could help me figure out maybe the best ways to get around, because I don't, I don't think I'll be able to uh, rent a car that seems to be a bit expensive. The bus service is really good and the trains. From Edinburgh, uh, you can get a train to St Andrews if you're interested in golf. And there's a train up to Pitlochry and Inverness. And there's a train that you can take to Kylo Vlochalsh and the bus will take you over to the island of Skye. So there's a company called Megabus 
And if you book well ahead, mega bus, you can get really reasonable budget fares. And the other company is City Linking. And they're comfortable, book ahead. They go to these remote places, but you can use the train. But the train is expensive. And you know what I would remind Claire is, you're a backpacker, you're a student, you're going to be starting in Edinburgh. There's all sorts of informal hostels Hostels there, there. which are very entrepreneurial. And they're connected with all the hippie backpacker kind of travel, dirt cheap kind of travel options. And there's these circuits called the, like the Haggis Backpacker Hopper or something like this. And, And it's like a bus pass. And every day there's a bus departing and you can just hop on whatever bus and you're hanging out with other backpackers. Lock nice. And they go from hostel to hostel to youth hostel. And those are not only very inexpensive, but they connect you with young travelers and they get you set up in the youth hostels. And even if I had all the money in the world, if I was in my early 20s traveling, I would, uh, I'd stay in the youth hostels because you'd have all those friends there and you'd have access to all of the activities that that they put together for young travelers. That's a brilliant rabbies and Rab- trailblazers I was and in happy haggis tours. All of those, yeah, yes. they're just fun. Well, that's a much better idea, and actually. Go on them because you'll have fun. Yeah, because it's a party. It's a <laughs> yes. party uh, on, the, on the road. And I, was, I had a hotel room in Portree last year overlooking, the, that's the main town in the Isle of Skye. And just below me was the uh, little tiny bus terminal for the, the hub of Skye. And all morning and all evening, the rabbies buses were coming and going, and these were filled with backpackers who were doing the long day out from Inverness. And the cool thing about these, they're not just, it's not a Greyhound bus that takes you from A to B. It's designed for travelers, so you're going to stop here for a photo, stop here for a little walk, stop here to see the monster, stop here for your yeah, haggis, you know. They do three-day tours and longer and one-day tours. Yeah. They do a variety. That's a, the best idea. That's, that's helpful. You're a genius. Seamus, any wow. idea? The, the <laughs> other thing you can do as well is if you find yourself on the coastlines, maybe taking a train to, to Oban, for example, there's, there's hostels there, and then you can go on the ferries. Yeah. And the ferries are so mm-hmm. cheap now because many of them are using what's known as a road-equivalent tariff, RET, and it's very cheap now to get to outer islands. There's fantastic little campsites on there. Uh, well, what is the road equivalent to That sounds like a beautiful idea where you're just um, subsidizing the islands, helping people still yeah. afford to go to the islands. It's opened up now right into Mull and those places. So it's a way for where I live, example, you can take a car now to the Hebrides for £30 return from the Isle of Skye. Is so it calibrated by what it would cost to drive there if yeah. it was land? Yeah. It's, huh. a, it's an incredible uh, scheme. So it makes it really affordable for you to go there. And wow. if you arrive on any of those islands, you'll find lovely little places to camp uh, by the shore or with the local people. Claire, you can tell just from talking to Seamus and Anne, you're going to meet a lot of very nice people. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Little Red Bus it, Tour, there's another one. Little there's a red lot bus. of options. Yeah. Thanks Rabbis for your call, trailers. Claire. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great trip. That's the best for her. Bye. Patty's calling from Omaha. Patty, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi, do you have Thanks a for taking my call. Yeah, do you have a comment or a question? Yes, I have a question. I am planning to also my first trip to Scotland, but I'm doing it a little bit differently. I enjoy backpacking, which is in the mountains here in the States. And so I've been looking at the West Highland Way. So I would mm. fly into Glasgow and head mm. north on the West Highland Way to Anson mm. Fort William. One mm. thing I haven't been able to find much is if people are allowed to do backcountry camping along yes, the way. Uh, for there. And then when I get to Fort William, I was also had a question about, I have a couple days extra, so I was going to ask about the Jacobit steam train. Mm-hmm. Yes. Jacobite okay. yeah. Seamus, what about hiking? I mean, I was in Fort William and it just felt like a uh, an advertisement for hiking. There's all these hiking shops, everybody's there walking sticks and their yeah. hiking boots. And in uh, Scotland, you don't have any uh, 
any Mount Everests or no. you don't have any Mount Blancs, but you got the, the Monroes, right? Yes, we have the Monroes. What are the so Monroes? The mountains that are over 3,000 feet. We've got over 280 of them from the Highlands of Scotland. And people hike these Monroes they with, hike them. without do, oxygen tanks. Yeah, they do. And you can 3,000 feet. Yeah. And oh, that's my a, goodness. We get a nosebleed when we go up 3,000 feet uh, <laughs> over in Scotland. And our uh, ears pop. But the thing, the thing about them, you can do become a Monroe bagger. Okay. Uh, and the youngest person I've discovered who was a Monroe bagger was a girl at age 11. And she'd done all of these uh, high hills in Scotland with her mum. But hiking and backpacking is one of the greatest traditions that we actually have in the Highlands. There's so many different routes you can go So Patty can be a Monroe bagger. She could be, yeah. So Patty, <laughs> you, you can hike 3,000 feet up, can't you? Yes, yes. I, I, want, to, I want to hike up uh, Ben Nevis. Okay, well, that's the ultimate that's the Monroe. Yeah. Is, is that tough to Have either of you climbed Ben There's Nevis? There's an easy way and a difficult way. It's not too bad when you go the easy way. All but right. But you can, the answer to your question, you can camp wherever you like when you're on the West Highland okay. Way. So you can pitch a tent. Was that what you were asking? Yes, yes. Yes. You okay. get a certificate at the end. You, you know that. When you go into Fort William, you get a... A badge for saying you've done the West Highland Way. Oh, that's nice. And the Jacobite train, um, the oh, Harry train. Potter train, as I call it, uh, going Jacobite all the way down train, to all yeah. the way down to Malak. I did that a few years ago, and it was an incredible experience because you're going through these little small uh, carriages. Uh, mm. You're going over the Glenfinnan Viaduct. You've got all the steam coming off there, mm. and heading down to the Glenfinnan Viaduct itself, which is historically very important for Bonnie Prince Charlie first set foot uh, in Scotland, and then oh. heading on down to Malak. Uh, Great again. scenery too. Patty, you're okay. going to have a great time. Thanks for your call. Great. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking Scottish itineraries with James McCletchie and Anne Doig. And let's just finish off it. I just, for me, I am a, I'm a romantic sucker for a bagpipe. There's something about the stirring emotion of a bagpipe. Stirs your heart, yes. If you, if you come upon a, a lone bagpiper. Oh, <gasps> it's fantastic. As a Scottish person, what do you hear? What does it mean to you? It means a lot. It stirs something in the blood. Because, uh, you know, they used to use them to get people G'd up to go into battle. And then they, as a lament, a lot of sad stories. Yeah, you just sort of feel something sad. It's sad, but it's not depressed sad. It's, it's, it's inspirationally it's, sad. Yes, I, yes. I'll never forget. Melancholy, maybe. Melan- I remember being in Edinburgh and, and they, <clears> they seemed to post the lone bagpiper at the top of the castle and it's dark and there's a spotlight on him. Oh, yes, that's very moving the at the tattoo, one what, on its own. He, he plays the last post, I think. Last uh, post. What they used to play after a battle. Oh. And yeah. The, the tourists kind of are struck by it, but local people too, because it really means oh, a lot. Oh, yes. When you see a, a lone piper with battlements or up in the hills, it's very moving. Yeah. Seamus, if there's one place that you could vividly feel and appreciate the soul of Scotland as a visitor, there's probably many, but what's one that you'd like to just cap this discussion with? Glencoe, to me, is probably one of the most poignant places I've, I've ever been. If you're there in the misty, melancholy days and it's been raining, it's as if the, the mountains themselves are weeping when they come through there. And if you tie it into the history of that place and you wander in there and you suddenly realize that you are insignificant in life, you mean nothing when you go into this massive area and you suddenly realize your own vulnerability. And you just stand in this place and you listen to the silence, you hear the winds coming through the quarries. Mm. And you then try and put yourself back to those people that lived there, what it was like. And could we live there today? Mm -hmm. It's as if you're stepping into another world. And to me, Glencoe, every time I've ever gone through there since I was 10 years of age, you have to stop. You have to stop and you have to walk 100 meters away from the car, if if that's all. Just because you want to get away from the asphalt, you want to get away from the noise, the other people. 
and then, as you said, turn around and face the hills. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's beautiful. I, this is so, so rewarding to travel to Scotland and to travel well in Scotland. And we're able to better do that with your help. James McCletchy and Doig, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. It's what you wish every town in Greece looked like. About an hour and a half south of Athens and a little down the road from Corinth, you'll find a seaside port they call the most beautiful town in all the Peloponnese. We'll explore Naflio next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Van Hest and I was born in the Netherlands and I'm going to teach you a tongue twister, what we use in the Netherlands. So, Lotje leerde liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. That means Lotje, a girl, taught liesje, another girl, to walk along the lane of linden trees. A long lane of linden trees. So that makes Lotje leerde liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. You might call it an early midlife crisis. A few years after Nikos Hadjikostas quit his job as a media executive in Cyprus, he decided to see for himself what the rest of the world had to say. Little did he expect that a few days into his adventure, he'd meet a woman in New York who would eventually become his partner. Midway through his travels, Jane Kayantis would catch up with Nikos to share their global adventure together. After six years and six continents, Nikos returned to live under the Aegean sun, now with his partner, Jane. They found a cottage surrounded by orange groves and olive trees just outside what happens to be my favorite town in the Greek Peloponnese. And while they see themselves as citizens of the world, Naflio is where they make their home. Nikos and Jane join us now from the Sky Group Studios in Athens to tell us why Naflio is an ideal base for you to explore the peninsula and nearby Greek islands. Nikos and Jane, welcome. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for having us. So you were six years on the road, and uh, Nikos, you're from Cyprus, and Jane, you're from New York, and you ended up in this little corner of Greece around Nafplio. What was it after tasting the whole planet that caused you to settle in Nafplio, which is two hours south of Athens, I believe, by car? It's about an hour and a half south. Nikos had been traveling around the world for a little bit over six years, and I had, I had joined him for the last two and a half and we finished the journey in Athens, Greece. And we decided, okay, let's try living in Greece for a little while. And we found a very nice cottage outside of Nafplio in the orange groves. And we thought we would stay for six months. Well, those six months quickly became six years. Mm. You know, I was just there and uh, we were outside of Nafplion and when you said orange groves, I thought it's like a garden around there. And it happened to be just a wonderful day when everybody was uh, roasting their lambs on spits, there was a community feeling where everybody would just drop into the neighbor's yards and they would gather at the church and do their Greek dancing. And and I thought, this is, I could understand how somebody could be uh, enamored with this sort of uh, society. Yes. And you know, Nafplio is uh, the most beautiful city of mainland Greece. There are other beautiful cities on the islands, but on mainland Greece, it's the most beautiful one. It's, uh, it was built by the Venetians. It's an old city. And it's unique because it has three castles. 
and uh, it's so picturesque and so well preserved and it's near the sea on the Argolic Gulf and that makes it very unique. You know, it's got these beautiful castles, it's a beautiful town, and it has an important history because it was the capital of Greece for a short time in the 19th century, wasn't it? Correct, correct. And uh, it's also an excellent base from which to explore the area. You know, the Peloponnese looks like an open palm of a hand, uh-huh. and Argolis is the thumb. And I think the thumb is the most interesting of the Peloponnese because it encloses many historical and natural attractions. I want to do that in just a minute, but before we explore, let's talk about Nafplion itself because I think, you know, you got to see Athens and, what, four out of every ten Greeks live in greater Athens or something like that. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's brutal, it's kind of overwhelming, and you got to do it, but I think if you want to enjoy a little laid-back, smaller-town ambiance, you would, you would go to the countryside. And, and, Nikos, as you mentioned, it's the most beautiful town in the mainland of Greece. Uh, I suppose some towns might argue with that, but... I would just say candidly, Greek towns are are generally not very pretty. I I found the the towns on the island, you know, they're just (laughs) ugly. And I think Greece is so, it symbolizes beauty to me in so many ways, but the towns are are just ugly. Uh, What do you make of that, Jane and and Nicole? I think that at one point they were very beautiful, if very simple. And then the discovery of cement and concrete Mm. became known. (laughs) And unfortunately, they knocked down a lot of more historical types of buildings, which is why you get this very bland look in most of the Greek cities. Mm-hmm. But Nafplio was saved by um, a miracle, really. So you do so, get that, that 19th century feel when you walk around Nafplio. It's a 19th century feel. It feels a little Italian because mm-hmm. the Venetians built most of it. It's on the bay, so you have mm. this water nearby and in the distance you can see the Arcadian mountains Mm. so it's just a very unique place Mm. and fortunately the old buildings have survived and are are in pretty good condition. You mentioned uh, the Venetian influence. I remember walking, what is it, 999 steps to the castle and when you finally get up there decorating the gate to the castle would be uh, the uh, Venetian lion, St. Mark. And a reminder that the Venetians had this trading empire that stretched all the way to, suppose it stretched all the way to your home island of Cyprus there in Nikos. Um, but it's a beautiful uh, town to wander on. And uh, the point I was going to make is, if you're going to make a small town a, a home base for exploring Greece, it's so easy to get there. And then you can spend a couple of days simply enjoying the town. And then you can side trip out. And within a couple of miles, you've got Mycenae, which is wondrous to me because the Mycenaean civilization was as mysterious to Socrates and Plato as Socrates and Plato are to us. I mean, it goes back another thousand years, doesn't it? Yes, yes. and it's the basis for Homer's uh, poems, you know, that's uh, where all, all began. <laughs> In Mycenae. <laughs> so you can you can be inspired by that, and, and you can also go to the greatest theater in the ancient world uh, a few miles in the other direction, Epidavros. Yes, and uh, on top of that, you have the vineyards of Nemea and the beautiful beaches in Porto Heli. And if you drive a little bit further near the coast, you arrive to three of the most beautiful Greek islands that mm. are just at the tip of the thumb, which is Hydra, Spetses, and Boros, each with its own character and charm. Two of them, Hydra and Spetses, don't allow cars. 
They are pedestrian, completely pedestrianized, and they are amazing, very beautiful. Now, I know uh, Idra very well. That's covered in a chapter in our book, and for me it's remarkable that it's one of my favorite Greek islands anywhere, and it's just a couple hours from Athens by the fast ferry. So it's a very easy, probably the easiest great mm-hmm. island uh, in the Greek sea to, to visit from Athens would be Idra, H-Y-D-R-A. And as you mentioned, uh, Nikos, no traffic there except for... Uh, donkeys that help move people's suitcases up to their hotels and so on. And I just have had so many magical moments on Idra, uh, and it has a great maritime history, and one day uh, uh, in its day it was a sort of a maritime power. Can you explain the three islands to us a little better so we could choose smartly which island we might want to visit? Um, Spetses is one of the three, and it's a short ferry ride from a small town called Costa, And it's very beautiful because there's this huge promenade and you have a lot of horse and buggies coming up and down. Hmm. They do allow cars, but only taxis and there are very few. So it has that very silent, almost, you know, invisible, you know, modern day life style there. And what island is that, Jane? That island is called Spetses. Spetses. It's a lot of um, green meets sea because mm-hmm. the island itself is very green mm-hmm. and it has it's full of pine trees. So often they fall the into the sea. Yeah, fall into <laughs> the sea. Yes. And what's the other and island? That's uh, Poros. Poros. That's the nearest island to the mainland. You only it only takes ten minutes to cross over to the island, and that's very green also with amazing beaches, uh, off the beaten path actually. And uh, very underestimated. So more more one. laid back and undiscovered yes. than Idra, which okay. would be the sort of the, the dramatic island of the three, I suppose. Yes, but Idra is also a little bit laid back. Not not mm. many tourists there. Yeah. Many writers and artists go there. I love Idra. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nikos Hatikostis and his partner Jane Kayantis. And they're sharing their experience from living in their adopted hometown of Naplion. Nikos has written a book called Destination Earth to share highlights from his around-the-world journey of more than six years. In it, Nikos explains how it changed the way he looks at the world and his place in it. You'll find a link to his website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Margo is calling in from Santa Barbara. Margo, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi there. Do you have a comment for Nikos or Jane? Well, um, my husband and I discovered Naplio maybe four or five years ago when we were in Greece, and we actually took a taxi from Athens because we knew George, the cab driver. And at the time, this is the very beginning of of the Greek uh, financial trouble, so we took a very expensive taxi ride to Naplio. But once we got there, we found a little hotel downtown and just loved it. It was it was very much like visiting Venice with a big uh, malacone. And we also went to Spetsas and we went to Idra on different boats and we went to Turkey as a with uh, Napoleo as our base. Hmm. But we just loved the um, museum that I very rarely get my husband to go into a museum, but we enjoyed that very much with all the different. Um, jewelry and statuary and earthenware and the big marble uh, plaza back behind the Malacan. Mm-hmm. I actually bought my Greek, what would you call it, the evil eye? Oh, yeah. They have a lot of those. In fact, there's, well, they've got the evil eye thing, and they also have that wonderful little museum of um, worry beads. Yes, they do. But the archaeological museum in Nafplio is fantastic. 
it really is for such a little place. It was it's it was small. incredible. Yeah, it's. I think it's the perfect museum for people who don't really like museums. <laughs> yes, I know. I got my husband to go there, and we also found the beach down the hill from Napoleo. Oh, good, good. With Did the, you continue with the to do the lounges and up? the little restaurants? And is that the one that with was... the with the exercise gear in the parking lot? <laughs> you know? Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I. You know, that's a fascinating beach, and you can w- make a nice walk along the coast uh, around. Yeah, the it was peninsula. a nice walking beach. I love that. And it's underneath that that haunting, gutted, abandoned giant hotel that apparently didn't work. Yeah, yeah you are not supposed to mention that, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a, a haunting thing, isn't? There's this massive hotel that's just a, a vacant lot, basically, of yeah, concrete. These were state hotels. They, uh, they still had state hotels in Greece until recently. Hey, Margot, by the way, you went to Spetsos and you went to Idra. How would you compare the two if people are debating? Well, you know, in 1971, I went to Idra. And um, it, to me, it was much more charming then because it's become very, very built up. In fact, we went over to where the yacht club used to be, and that used to be a nice stroll, and now it's just filled with buildings and things. But it's still really lovely. And when we went in 71, we went over across the top of the hill to a monastery. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's still there or not, but... Um, we did walk up and down the steps. We didn't take a donkey, so we didn't well, go that far. To, to me, Idris, the kind of place, and this has happened to me, where I step out and I think, I'm just going to walk around the block, and I keep walking, and I keep yes. walking, and I end up <laughs> going to the top of the town, and it was so fascinating, I couldn't stop, and then I crest the hill, and I go, well, let's go downhill the other way, and I find myself in the next village, and then I find myself drinking a nice glass of ouzo and watching the sunset, and then walking along the coast, and it's just, and then I, I get to go past a, the yacht harbor and look into the windows of all the yachters and see what they're watching on their big screen TVs. And then I get back to my charming little town center. Idra has that sort of uh, magic feel. Hey, Margo, we've got to run. So thank you for your call. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nikos Hadjikostas and his partner, Jane Kayantis. Nikos' book is called Destination Earth. And Nikos and Jane, after years of travel, settled in the little town of Nafplion, about an hour and a half south of Athens. And it's a great jumping off point for experiencing the rest of that part of Greece. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Adele's calling from the Woodlands in Texas. Hi, Adele. Hello, Rick. I'm thrilled to talk to all of you, and I was so excited when I saw Napoleon come up as one of your guests and that he and his wife live there. We remember it so vividly because we had been to Mycenae and we had been to Delphi. We tend to travel on our own normally, and this was many years ago, Rick, when you were a child. (laughs) (laughs) And you you enjoyed Napoleon? We did, and we enjoyed everything in Greece. We had been living in Cornwall in England. My husband was on an exchange with the Royal Navy and the Royal Marines hmm. after his tour in Vietnam. And so we had children that were ill during the gales and storms of the autumn season in Cornwall. <clears throat> we went to Greece, and it was all sunshine. We went over Christmas, and we took my husband's mother with us as a surprise for her. And we had a wonderful visit because everyone was well. Uh, their Christmas, of course, the Orthodox Christmas was later that year, so we went during the Western Christmas. And at that time, nothing was heavily touristy at right. all. Right. It's we a, had a little 
minivan with a driver that was Greek and did not speak English, and then we had uh, about four school teachers, young school teachers, also in the minivan, and a translator. You know, so, in Greece, you can afford to have a translator. You can afford. I, I've never needed a translator. I don't speak Greek, but I find people speak English these days. But it is nice to have a private guide and even a car. Our previous caller took a taxi from Athens to Nafplio. Uh, you'll find drivers are looking for work and happy to work, and uh, there's wonderful guides. Everywhere I go in Greece, I try to hire a local private guide so I can get more out of my visit. Well, we don't usually do that, but what had happened was there were so few of us that Thomas Cook at that time arranged it and then said, oh, you can't go because there are too few. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so, there's more the people there now. <laughs> taxi driver found a lovely young woman that helped us All right. because at that time almost no one was speaking English. Right. Well, that was back in the 70s, right? Way back. Way and back. <laughs> I will say that the gift of oranges to the children everywhere we went made such a difference, too, we think, in their health. I'm yeah. sure that now it is a very big economic product. Oh, yeah. But at that time, when they would come into a restaurant and do the Greek dancing, sometimes they would hand the children oranges oh, for dessert. Nice. Adele, we got to run. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, Bye-bye. bye. Nikos Hadjikostas and Jane Kayantis are sharing the sights of their home in Nafplio. It's a seaside town on the Aegean, a bit south of Athens, on Greece's Peloponnesian Peninsula. Nikos has written Destination Earth, a new philosophy of travel, to share highlights and insights from his six-year around-the-world journey. You'll find a link to his website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Nikos and Jane, when you think about Greece right now, we think of uh, they're digging out of their hole from the economic problems and, and the huge debt. Do you find uh, people are demoralized, or is, is it a time of hopefulness? They are demoralized, but they still have hope. And I think that everybody's working really hard to make some significant changes, and they're patient. Yeah, these are difficult times, unfortunately, but they are waves, all these uh, eras, they come and go, no? That's, that's life. <laughs> and Greece has a long history to look back on, and I, I suppose they can just settle down and little by little move forward. Correct. And when I was in Nafplion, I was just overwhelmed by the joy. I was there for just uh, last Easter, and uh, I met the, I made friends with the priest. His name was Dionysus. <laughs> he was the yes. coolest priest. I don't know if you know him, but he was a delight. And the whole town gathered, and, and much as they have their economic struggles, uh, they certainly appreciate the tourists who visit, and uh, there's a joy and a spirit in that town that is just infectious. When will you be coming again? I'll come more soon after this conversation than I would have otherwise, okay? We are expecting you, and we'll take good care of you. Okay. Hey, Nikos and Jane, thanks so much for joining us. And, and Nikos, uh, congratulations on your book, Destination Thank Earth. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us. Okay, happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Catton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. 
at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks for studio help this week to Pantelis Kalazitis at the Sky Group's 94.6 Sport FM in Athens. You'll find more each week at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.